What a true statement. God was faithful then in the past, and he will be faithful now. Thank you so much for leading us in that. Good morning. It's good to see you. I want to join, uh, invite any of you who are joining us online. Glad that you are tuned in today at Facebook. And then also, uh, just so that you know, we've opened up the Family Life Center. We have some chairs set up in there. And so those of you who are watching uh, in the Family Life Center, I want to welcome you as well. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're glad that you're here. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn to Isaiah 41. Isaiah chapter 41. We're going to look at the last few verses of this great chapter. Isaiah 41, verse 21 to 29. 21 to 29. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. He, he used to work as a court historian in Jerusalem during the reigns of four kings. That's what he says whenever he begins uh, his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and then he lists the four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So can you imagine through four different administrations he served the Lord? I was thinking about how that span of time, the Bible scholars tell us, would have been about 55 years. Can you imagine tracking God's faithfulness for 55 years? You know, Charles Stanley had, had uh, served as the senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Atlanta for 51 years. Uh, Ed Young has served as the senior pastor at Second Baptist in Houston for 53 years. Billy Graham uh, was active in his ministry as an evangelist for 60 years. So those were close to what we're talking about in terms of the long ministry of Isaiah. But I wanted to point out something as we start into Isaiah 41 that's mentioned also in this very first verse, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. That's what he says in chapter 1 and verse 1, the vision of Isaiah. How is your vision? How far can you see? You know, they say that the typical person, typical adult, can see like about three miles down the road if the conditions are right. About three miles, some only two miles, and so forth. But I got to thinking about how God enabled Isaiah to see way down the road, way beyond his lifetime even. You know, um, God enabled him because he began his ministry in 740 B.C. That's when Uzziah died, and that's when God called him into the ministry. And he served until at least the end of Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah died, Bible scholars tell us, in 685 B.C. So just imagine how long of a ministry that he had. You know, but think about how far he could see. Because Isaiah prophesied about something called the Babylonian exile. He warned the people of Judah, someday the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to force you to leave your home country. And you're going to be taken into exile in Babylon. And so that began in 605 B.C. A little bit more happened in 597. And finally in 586 B.C. it happened. You know what's really interesting about all of that? All of that took place, well, let's say 99 years or so after his death. So isn't that amazing that Isaiah was given insight 
and foresight that he could see things that would happen after his lifetime. You see, that's something only God can do. And so not only did he predict the Babylonian exile, we're going to see here in Isaiah 41, he also predict someday God's going to send a great leader and he's going to lead the people to go out of bondage in Babylon and go back to their homeland. And that man was going to be Cyrus. And so Cyrus the Great, he was a Persian. And so that would have been 147 years down the road. So just imagine how powerful it is when the Holy Spirit inspired these men to write the scriptures and they could see down the road. They could even, this man, Isaiah, could even see Jesus and how he would die on the cross. He could even see Jesus and how he was born. And so I want us to look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 41. What he's going to try to do, he's going to try to reassure the Jews not to fear. I think maybe there might be someone in this room and you're battling fear about something. And so God is going to be talking through the prophet to the people back then. But just like we heard, faithful then, faithful now. God's going to relieve your fears about something today as we look into his word. So he was trying to help the Jews not to fear the nations and not to fear rejection by God. And so the, the setting as we go into chapter 41 is like a courtroom. And I thank the Lord so much. We have attorneys, we have judges that are here in our midst. And so I got to really make sure I know my stuff as we come into this passage or they'll call me on it later. But in Isaiah 41, you'll see they begin. It's like a courtroom scene. And God is calling everyone into this courtroom scene. And then he takes a break from it and picks it back up where we're going to pick up in verse 21. So I want to introduce the context before we begin with verse 21 so you'll know what's been happening. Well, in verses 1 through 7, like I said, the Lord summons the whole world to court. And what he's going to prove, he's going to prove that he's been active in human history. Do you believe that God has been active in human history? That's what he's going to prove. And so he tells everyone, the whole world, I want you to sit there and listen in silence as we bring forth the evidence. And so it just absolutely scares the people to death. And so what they do is they turn to idols and they begin to say, we got to make something that can protect us from this great and awesome God. But then when you go into verses 8 through 20, the focus shifts from talking about his judgment upon the nations to his comfort for his people. And so once again, what he says is, I'm going to raise up a deliverer. His name is going to be Cyrus. He'll come from the east. He's going to deliver you out of bondage in Babylon. And so what he tells them three times, don't be afraid. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. I believe that's a word he wants to say to you today. In verse 10, for example, he said, fear not. Why not? Why should we not fear? Well, he said to them, and I think he would say to us, fear not for I'm with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You drop down to verses 13 and 14, and you hear him say it two more times. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. 
Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And so isn't it great that God is saying, the reason you don't need to be afraid is because I'm with you. And over and over again in this passage, he keeps on saying the same thing. I will. I will. I will. Do you know he says it 11 times in this chapter? You see, sometimes we're looking at what others are going to do. Sometimes we're thinking, I don't think I can pull us out of this. So we're thinking about what we can do. But God says, the reason you don't fear is because what I am going to do. So 11, 14 times he says, I will, I will, I will, and so forth. So let's look at this last section from verse 21 through 29. And so now what's going to happen is he's going to say, you've trusted in idols. I want those idols to come before me in this courtroom. And I'm going to put those idols on trial. And so that's what we're going to see is he's going to prove that he is real and the idols are just fake. So let's all stand together. I hope you're following along in your copy of God's word. Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 29. I've given the message, the title, Declare to us the things to come. Declare to us the things to come. I think you'll see as we go forward why I gave it that title. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things that they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there's no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Oh Lord, there are so many voices today that are just calling on us to trust them, trust them, trust them. But Lord, I pray that we would see that you are the faithful one. You were faithful during the time of Isaiah. You were faithful during the exile in Babylon. You were faithful to raise up Cyrus the Great, who led the people back to their homeland in Israel. You were faithful to send Jesus, the Savior, our Messiah, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. 
You were faithful to raise him up from the dead. And I know you'll be faithful in our generation. So as we look into this word, you speak to us what each one of us needs to hear. I pray that you would take care of the fear that is trying to strangle us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This trial was basically, it had one main issue. Who controls world history? Who's in charge? Could you answer that if someone asked you, what's going on in our world? Is anybody in control? Is it a man? Is it a nation? Is it the devil? Would it be false religions? I want you to listen to learn who is it that really has been directing history all along. First, the judge of the universe invites the lifeless idols of man to present their evidence for their case. They claim they're gods. And so God invites them in verse 21. Okay, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Unfortunately, you know what? Lifeless, powerless idols, they can't answer. They can't present anything because they're not alive. And so they don't really exist. And so the Lord has to answer for them. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44? You see, this is God answering for those idols that cannot speak. And so in Isaiah 44 in verse 9, listen to what God says in his word about idols. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing behold all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human let them all assemble let them stand forth they shall be terrified they shall be put to shame together the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it, he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, 
for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? So you see what God is saying? He's saying, why are you doing this? It doesn't even make sense. You made this idol. You carved it. You put it together. But I just want to remind you of something that's very sobering. I'm sure you've heard this before, but I want to remind you of this. Do you know that in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, each person who rejects Jesus Christ will have a similar summons to a similar courtroom before the Almighty. It's called the great white throne. And all of the people, the great, the small, they're all going to be summoned before this throne. And books are going to be opened. And all that makes the difference is, is your name found written in the book of life, or is it not there? And some, I'm sure, are going to say, but I've been a good person. And God is going to say, okay, Let's go ahead and open the books. So they're going to open the books of our deeds. And they're going to say, let's see if this guy who says he's been a good person, let's see how good he has been. And it won't take long when they read off the list of how unworthy each and every one of us are. You see, the Bible says all of us have sinned. Every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty before a holy and a righteous God. Let that just sink in. That if I reject his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will cover my sins, who will wash away my sins, if I reject that offer, then I'm going to stand before God and I will be guilty and there will be evidence. There will be proof. Just like these idols, they're brought before God. You know, Romans 14, 7 through 12 Reminds me of what we hear a lot today. Don't judge me. We have fun sometimes joking about that. Don't judge me. Well, that's exactly what Romans chapter 14 verses 7 through 12 says. Don't judge other people. So it's not right for me to judge you or judge anybody. But you know what? God says, don't judge others. Why does he say that? Because God says, I'll do the judging. See, he says in there, each person, each person will give account of himself to God or herself. And so just think about how sobering that would be to stand before the Lord God, the Almighty, who knows everything. He's omniscient. There's nothing that escapes his notice. So there a person stands and they've rejected Christ. So now they must stand like those idols and they know there's nothing there. That's the invitation to present the evidence. But let's move to the next verse, verse 22 and verse 23. Because the accountability reminds us of this second action of the court. You see, the court must examine the articles 
to see is this really dependable evidence or not. You see, not all evidence in a courtroom, even in our courtrooms, not all evidence is admissible. Some is ruled inadmissible. It depends on is it relevant? Is it authentic? Is it complete? Is it reliable? Is it material? And so the Lord lays out the standards. And he says, I tell you what, we're going to see. We're going to see if this evidence will meet my standards. You see, God has the standards, not us. He sets the standard. It's his universe. And so he decides. And so what God says is, okay, idols, if you're going to make a claim to be God, then this is what you must be able to do. He said, let them bring them, talking about the evidence, and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to uh, come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. And then he says, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. So basically, God says the criteria is simple. There's three things, if you are a God, you should be able to do. The first thing is, you should be able to tell what's coming in the future. You should be able to not only cast a vision, you should be able to cast a correct vision of what the future looks like. And so they can't do it. That's what's going to come out as we go through there. But he says that's one thing that God, the true God, the true God would know what's going to happen in the future. But that's not all. He said, also, you need to be able to certify previous generations. I wonder if he would even say to the idols, can you tell me how the earth was founded? Can you tell me how it is that all of those planets orbit and there's nothing that they're sitting on? They just hang there in the air. Can you tell me how all of these things happen? And of course, the idols would say nothing in reply because they can't. What about you? Can you certify all the previous generations? Can you predict what's going to happen in the future? I think we can't do that either. And you know what it means? It just means, this is all, it just means you're human. It means you're not God. I'm not God. None of us can do that. We can't predict the future, and we certainly can't go beyond our generation. Sure, we can read books, and we can learn some things. But this is talking about an exhaustive list where in your mind, you know everything that's ever happened. That's the almighty God. That's what he can do, those who claim to do that. But then the other thing I thought was interesting is the last part of verse 23, when God says, if idols, you're going to claim to be God, then you need to be able to intervene into present day circumstances. And he says, you can do something good or you can do something harmful or bad. Just let us see you can do something. And of course, the idol just sits there because it's lifeless. Maybe you think this is ridiculous. Oh, no, it's not. You see, because millions around the globe, millions of people pray to stone idols. I've seen it with my own eyes in Japan. You should be praying for Jacob Tice because he's got quite an incredible thing in front of him where people pray to dead ancestors and people give offerings to statues and all these kind of things. There are people who really do pray to idols and so forth. Next, the judge makes a ruling after examining the flimsy evidence. And you know what he says? 
There's nothing credible here. God says, you idols are definitely not gods. Look at verse 24. Behold, you are nothing, idols. Your work, idols, is less than nothing. And then he says, an abomination is he who chooses you. So that's what he's saying to them. You're less than nothing. You're not able to do a thing. People pray to you. They count on you. They're trusting you. And sad reality is many today are still doing that. And God says, that's why he says it's an abomination. Because people are so confused. People are so misled and deluded. Theologian John N. Oswald says of verse 24, the same thing I've been trying to get across, that the verdict on the gods, he said, since you're unable to explain the past or tell the future, you're unable to act independently, then the verdict, there are no other gods other than the Lord God. That's the verdict. And yet, haven't you seen Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1, verses 18, down to the end of the chapter, where it says how God is, it's like we're without excuse because of all the things that God has created. And yet we continue to suppress the truth, hold it down. We continue to exchange the truth for a lie. And people began to worship man or worship idols or worship animals and all these other things instead of the Lord, our God, our creator. So now we go to verse 25. Look with me at verse 25. The focus in the courtroom suddenly shifts from the empty, disappointing claims that lifeless, powerless idols are in control of history. It's already been proven by the Lord. He said, no, they don't. They can't do a thing. They can't do anything now. They don't understand what's happened in the past, and they certainly don't know anything that's happening in the future. They're nothing but lifeless, powerless Idols, they are not in control of history. And so now comes the verification. God says, I'll tell you who controls history. I can verify it with evidence that it is a reality. So over 150 years before he raised up Cyrus the Great, the Holy Spirit reveals it to this prophet Isaiah and says, someday, Someday, whenever the, the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon, I'm going to take a man from Persia. We would say Iran today, Iran. And so from there, from the east, I'm going to bring this man. And he's going to be going on a rampage, taking over. He's going to take over all these different places, the Median Empire, the Lydian Empire. But then he's going to come down from the north, and he is going to take over the Babylonian Empire. If you do research on the empire at that time, the Persian Empire was one of the greatest, largest empires up until that moment in history there had ever been. And yet, here he is calling it out over 150 years before it ever even took place. That's why the Lord says, I stirred up one from the north, talking about Cyrus. And he has come from the rising of the sun, talking about Persia. And he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Because at the time Isaiah was alive, Babylon was not the superpower. 
You know who was the superpower? At that time, not Babylon, Assyria. So it's like he knew Babylon was going to be in charge, and he knew that they were going to be exiled by the Babylonians, but he also knew someday there's going to be a man named Cyrus. I want you to see something that's really fascinating in terms of biblical prophecy and accuracy. Look with me at Isaiah 44 one more time. Would you turn to chapter 44, verse 28? And we're going to go down through chapter 45 and verse 4. Listen to what God says over 150 years before Cyrus was even able to take over Babylon and so forth. God is talking and he says, who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted place. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Isn't that amazing? God would use this unbelieving king named Cyrus. And God would say, 160 years in advance, I'm going to pick him. And he's going to accomplish what I want done. And I think it's so incredible that it was verified in history. As a matter of fact, there was a Greek historian named Herodotus, and he said of Cyrus and the Persian army whenever they were going and conquering everybody, you know what he said? He said they subjugated every nation without exception. I mean, they want to stand up in front of the Persians, they're down, you know, and they would just conquer and conquer and conquer and conquer. And so God is saying they're going to do that only because I'm going to let him. I'm going to let him because it fits with my purpose to let him do it. So now I want to go to the last thing in Isaiah 41 that we need to see. Go back to Isaiah 41. I want you to look at verses 26 to 29. The issue in this passage has been the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of his work. But also, because he called it in advance, the reality of God's word. So is he truly sovereign over history? And if he says it, does it really happen? You know what? We better hope it really happens, because he said we're going to heaven. And if prophecy isn't right, there is no heaven. But we know, we're convinced that prophecy is right. We're convinced that Jesus is coming back. We're convinced that everything God says happens exactly like he says it. So after carefully examining the biblical record alongside the historical evidence, we now come to the declaration of the verdict in verses 46 to 29. 
26 to 29. So the first declaration that the judge makes in this courtroom is he says, you know what? I see the reliability of the scriptures, the reliability of the word of God. God says, who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he's right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I decree, I say to Jerusalem, uh, I, I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. So just imagine he's the one who put it in the, the word of God. He put it in Isaiah. And here these people are in Babylon and they're reading this and they're thinking, how did he know? Especially once Cyrus comes and overthrows the king of Babylon, they're thinking, how did he know? It's the reliability of the scriptures. You know, Oswald says in his commentary that this prediction of, Iris, of Cyrus was made 160 years in advance. But once again, not only this, what I'm trying to say is whatever God has said, think about Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Probably somebody in this room on your Christmas card, you wrote Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, or it was already printed in your Christmas card. We love to see that verse because it was a prophecy about Jesus being born. He's not just a normal baby. He's like the son of God. He's going to be king and all these things. You know how far that was written in advance? 700 years. 700 years in advance. So what I'm trying to get at is the reliability of the scriptures. God declares it. He says, what I say, it happens. Second thing, second declaration is stated in verse 27, the sovereignty of God over history. The sovereignty of God over history. He says, I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. He said, I called this. I said that they would be going back to their homeland before it happened. But just think about how Isaiah prophesied that this was the southern kingdom of Judah. There was a southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. You had Judah and Israel. Well, Isaiah looked up there and he said, you know what? Someday that northern kingdom of Israel, the Assyrians are going to topple them. And they did. And then God said later through Isaiah the prophet, not only will the northern kingdom be gone, someday the Babylonians are coming and they're going to call for the southern kingdom and they'll go into exile. Happened just like he said. He prophesied like we're looking at here of Cyrus the Persian. He's going to set them free to go back. Did it happen? It certainly did. He prophesied of the Messiah. Do you know that it actually says in Isaiah 11, whenever the Messiah comes, he's going to hang out around a certain part of Israel called Galilee. You ever heard of Galilee when you read through the gospel? How did Isaiah know this? Because God is sovereign over history. He's working everything out according to the plan that he has. But the, also, we see a third declaration in verse 28. God declares the false gods and the idols, they are unable. The inability of the idols and the false gods, when he says to them, basically, they don't even exist. But when I look, there is no one. Of course, God sees an idol there. 
maybe it's made of gold or maybe it's made of stone. Of course, the idol is there, but it doesn't represent anyone. It's just, he says, I looked and there's no one. So they don't even exist and they certainly cannot explain. When he goes on to say, among these, there's no counselor who when I ask gives an answer. So he's like, tell me idols. And they can't answer. There is no answer because they can't even explain. They're not even there. So the fourth declaration warns those in verse 29 who might be tricked, who might say, you know what? I'm going to put my faith in them. He says, don't do it. Because the fourth declaration in verse 29 is the duplicity and the futility of other gods. When the Lord says plain, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images, just empty wind. There's nothing substantial there. Wow. Perhaps more than ever before, the people that you know at work, the people in your neighborhood or on your country road, the people at school, you know what? Maybe more than ever before, they're looking for some hope. They're saying, can you tell me just one reason why I ought to hope? And we've got a copy of God's word, and we know the Lord of history, and we ought to be able to say to them, yes, yes, I can give you a reason to hope. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, a reason for the hope that is in you. And he says, do it with gentleness and respect. So I thought to myself, wow, we're ready. This is our moment in time. Don't miss it. Don't be so discouraged and so down and so fearful that we miss our moment to step up to the plate and say, I know where the hope is found. I know where the hope is. And the way we're ready is when we surrender to the sovereignty of the Savior. He says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Same thing we've been reading in Isaiah 41. He's sovereign. So let him be sovereign in you. Let him rule in your heart, in your life. But then also trust in the reliability of the scriptures. It says always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Can you do that? Of course we can do that. The scriptures are so filled with so much hope. But we have to trust them. We have to know that God's dependable. He's reliable. What he said will happen. But notice also that we should always come across with humility because I'm telling you, once I stood where they're standing, once I didn't believe, once I was critical of Christians and faith and God and so forth, we once were there. So when they ask us for hope, how do we come across? What's our approach? Peter says, if you're going to talk about God, they would talk about it with gentleness. Talk about it with this, this respect that's there that says this is a human being. This is somebody who is just as lost in the darkness as I once was. You know, in terms of declaring to us verdicts, I like what Isaiah said in chapter 1, verse 18. You're not going to believe it. 
God makes an incredible verdict. How can he even do it? He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Victor, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How can he say that when I am so guilty? You know how he can say it? Because Romans 3, 24 and 25 brings up this word called justified. And it brings up the sacrifice the, that Jesus was my substitute. Jesus was perfect. He died in my place. And so that's why when the father looks at me, he sees me covered by the blood of Christ. And it says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's all it takes. When we just come back to that same thing, you know what? God's reliable. I'm going to take him at his word. That's what we do each Sunday. Whenever I stand down here, I'm willing to talk with anybody that says, I'm looking for hope. I know where the hope is found. We know where the hope is found. Sunday school teachers know where the hope is found. We would love to share that hope with you. And that's why I wait here to see, is there anyone looking for hope in this place? Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask our musicians to come, instrumentalists to come. They're going to prepare this last song. And this song says, just as I am. Just as I am. I remember that day for me. You know, I didn't try to clean my life up. I went to the Lord all, with all the brokenness and all the, the guilty stains. And he wiped them all away. He washed them away when I simply said, Jesus, I need a Savior. I need somebody to forgive me. And he said, let me do that. That is the only verdict you want to hear is not guilty, justified by his blood. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, there could be someone here. It's a frightening thing to think that they will stand before almighty God, that he's got a, a book with everything they've ever done written in it. And the only way out is to have their name written in your book by the blood of Christ to put their faith and their trust in one thing, not their good works, not their church attendance, but only in the finished perfect work of Jesus Christ. He was the only one who was perfect. That's why his death made such a difference. And so if anyone is here, Lord, that needs to place their trust in Christ, we plead with you to draw them by your Holy Spirit, convince them of the truth that they need Christ. Help them come out of the darkness, come into the light of your word. Thank you for how reliable you are, and thank you for how you're in control. You have been all along. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You come if you would like hope.